Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist, as we continue with this rapid pace as we reach the climax of Wellington Month. Today I'm bringing you an interview with somebody who I've wanted to have on this podcast for a heck of a long time. I am joined by Bob Burnham, one of the most deeply respected all-round experts when it comes to knowledge about the Peninsula War. Bob was a soldier in the US Army for over 21 years, served in four different continents, but after retiring, became a school librarian and was one for 19 years. He then retired to Hawaii, and for 22 years was the editor of the Napoleon series website, which had, I mean, I, I think it's hundreds, but I might be doing you a disservice there, Bob. It might actually be thousands of articles related to the period, reviews, just this beautiful treasure trove of really incredibly valuable information. He's also the author of seven books on the region, including Wellington's Light Division in the Peninsula War of the Formation, Campaigns and Battles of Wellington's Famous Fighting Force 1810, and also books relating to Waterloo, including uh, a book about the guards at Waterloo, which he co-authored with Ron McGuigan, uh, Wellington's Brigade Commanders, which is particularly going to form the focus of our discussion today, and the British Army against Napoleon. Bob, it is brilliant to have you on here. I can't believe it's taken me quite this long to invite you on. How are you doing? 
Oh, it's uh, doing pretty well. It's uh, halfway across the world and it's very early for me. Uh, fortunately for us, we've been experiencing a drought for the last five months and it rained all day yesterday. We got about an inch and a half of rain, so that was nice. Uh, I'm sure your flowers will be yeah. uh, quite happy about that. We should get Wellington out of the way quite fast on this one because I want today's episode to focus on those who have, to a greater or lesser extent, been overshadowed by his career. But he is the elephant in the room here. So what are your thoughts on Wellington as a man and as a commander? Well, you know, when you uh, first posed that question to me a while back, I had to think about that because despite all my studies uh, on the British Army in particular, I've never really focused much on Wellington. So uh, it's a good question. And I had to you know, spend some time thinking about it. And the first is you can't argue with his success. He, won he was a winner. I, I can only think of a handful of times where he got himself into some problems and he was pretty much uh, able to successfully uh, work out of them. But more importantly, he uh, he worked with what he had, and I've, I've read quite a bit of his correspondence, and yeah, he did some complaining back to uh, the horse guards and the rest of the government about you know how he needed more, because like any typical commander, he was never happy with what he had. But in the end, he always realized that, yeah, well, this is what I have. How can I... Uh, do what needs to be done with it. And he did it quite well. The, about the only criticism I have, and this is from a 21st century perspective, and a, uh, in my experience as a, an officer in the American military, was he was, to me, he was always kind of exclusive about who he was, uh, he lended a hand down to help out. Now, don't get me wrong, he, you know, he was always looking for talent, but I think his go-to initially was the, uh, from the upper classes, nobility, uh, uh, people from his background, probably those he was comfortable with. And I'm not saying that was bad, but I think if you were not considered uh, from the upper classes or had very little money, your chances of advancing were not as good as those who were. I think that's a very yeah. fair comment, isn't it? Um, and it also, this is what's so odd about Wellington, isn't it? That he was a product of that Ancien Regime style system of buying your way up the promotional ladder, where in so many instances it just didn't work. And you had people of very mediocre ability in pretty senior positions either within regiments or potentially even um, even higher up the the command structure and yet Wellington is just that fortuitous example that sort of it, it, it's almost the exception that makes the rule if you know what I mean somebody who bought their way up who actually was really uh, quite good I, I I tend to agree with you on that but I think if you also look at uh, for example who he surrounded himself with uh, as his personal staff. And these, you know, were quite good. Uh, the, the, young, the young ones, the lieutenants and captains who he promoted up through the, um, 
gave the opportunity to move up faster. Uh, the, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was writing the book on the foot guards at Waterloo, I started looking at the number of those who had served on his staff uh, in uh, the peninsula. Uh, and it was amazing. It was probably of the captains and majors and lieutenant colonels, it was probably 50% of them did. And when it came time to fill out his staff at Waterloo, he went down to the, back to the foot guards and asked uh, for them to be able to come up and join his staff, join the army staff. And it reached a point that so many of them did. We're talking about 40% of the company commanders and the four uh, battalions that went over there uh, were on the staff. Well, the Duke of York came back and said, you can't have any more. Uh, you're basically gutting the guards regiments at the company commander and uh, field grade officers level. And, you know, they still have to be able to function in the field. So, and of course, you know, think of the foot guards, you're, you are thinking of the, the moneyed class of Great Britain at the time. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, and so it's, uh, he went with those he was comfortable with. And it worked, so I really should not say it was a bad thing. It's just, I'm thinking, you know, if I was in his army and I didn't have the money, someone like George Simmons from the Rifles or uh, someone else, and the chances of me uh, getting those same advantages were probably slim. Absolutely. It goes back to that thing that Wellington preferred talent with a title to yeah. just pure talent, um, which, which I think you've, you've highlighted really, really nicely for us. Now, I spoke recently with Josh Proven um, about Wellington's divisional commanders, but I want to use this episode to drill down into the brigade commanders, something that often gets overlooked, but was based, the idea of this interview was based around one, a book that you co-wrote with Ron McGuigan. So before we talk about the individuals, just give us a sense of what a brigade commander was expected to do. Yeah, that's a very good question. I had to think a, a lot about that. Uh, and, you know, I think personally he had the easiest job in the army. Uh, his primary job was to ensure that the, battal the battalions within his brigade, the, the training and discipline was up to the standards of the army and the good ones made sure they did the bad ones did not and it became very apparent but even then for example his the training was not done by him it was uh done by the battalion commanders and they were expected to have their units up to snuff uh there was occasionally what they had uh were called field days where the brigade would form up and they would practice brigade maneuvers but that didn't happen too often. And even if you, uh, they didn't do it too often, the standard operating procedure for the, at the time uh, was set up so everyone knew where their battalion was supposed to go when they deployed as a brigade. Uh, another thing he had, and you could probably address uh, this better than me, uh, is that the, he had to ensure the discipline within his brigade, but even then, I don't, I'm not sure that the brigade commander had any say over court-martials since uh, court-martials were generally at regimental or the general officer level, division level or higher. Uh, you care to uh, answer that one? Yeah, so there is uh, a, what I think is sort of a, an awkward workaround of something called a brigade court-martial. 
And I spent a lot of time early on whilst I was doing my research and apologies to listeners who were sick of hearing me talking about discipline. Um, but I did a, a bit of digging into this and they don't actually exist, not as brigade courts martial. Um, certainly the, the regimental courts martial are, as the name suggests, kind of internal within the regiment. The sentences there are confirmed by the commanding officer of said regiment, so no real reason for the brigade commander to be involved there. And then general courts martial, as you say, that's general officer level, which goes to, in the case of the Peninsula War, Wellington for confirmation. And then the, the outcome of that trial is put into the general orders or in exceptional circumstances, they're sent home for confirmation by the Prince Regent and they're examined by the Judge Advocate General who oversees that whole system. So at brigade level, you do have this thing that they occasionally call a brigade courts martial, but I suspect that that's a little bit of a fudge. And what we're seeing is something like detachment um, courts martial that would have normally been tried at a general courts martial, but for whatever reason, kind of can't. And so they're fudging the name and, and finding a way to square the circle, as it were. Uh, yeah, that's uh, what's my understanding of it, too. So if you look at it, then within the brigade, other than ensuring that discipline was taking place, to me, uh, you know, actually enforcing discipline other than by personality and making sure everyone followed the rules and regulations, it was kind of like the stopgap where, okay, someone refers him for a general court martial, then he passes it up to the division or army level. And that was it. Uh, so really in non-combat situation, other than the train this units, his role was not the great, uh, wasn't much of a role. Now, tactically, I firmly believe he had the easiest job in the, uh, at any level. Well, he had very little autonomy as a brigade commander on how, what to do with his unit. Almost every brigade in both the British and the Portuguese army were subordinate to a division. And at the time, based over from between 1809 and 1814, I can only think of two British and two Portuguese independent brigades uh, that existed in Wellington's army. Uh, and within the British Army, one was a guards uh, brigade that came out in 1813 or so that was immediately incorporated into uh, part of the first division. Another one was a militia brigade that came out in 1814. And they got arrived there after the fighting was all over. The Portuguese had two brigades that were always independent, were never part of the um, uh, uh, the the Anglo-Portuguese divisions. And so they had quite a bit of autonomy. Uh, and of course, when you're assigned to a division, they basically are doing what the division commander tells them to, to do, where to go and what they were, and where to line up. And then at, look, continuing on with the tactically, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when it was time to deploy, if they deployed in line, the senior regiment in line would deploy on the right of the line, next senior one to the left of them and all the way down the line to the left until the junior battalion was already in line. And this was all, this was standard operating procedure for them for almost throughout the whole army uh, from the very beginning. So he just had to make sure his brigade got there on time and 
and tell him where to line up. And that's what he did. And at that point, his job was to inspire the men in the, uh, the battle and to transmit the orders down for that he received from the uh, division down to the battalions. And I hate to say it, but his job was to make sure they, uh, he was, they would lead him to the front. Well, I don't want to say, hate to say it, but his job was to lead the front and inspire his men. And that cost them quite, cost them quite a bit, which we can cover later. Now, one of the interesting things I found um, was a staff. I was a, a staff officer, both at battalion, brigade, and division level for many years. Over, and I had a fairly, fairly healthy staff working for me. But the brigade commander, commander, he had two staff members, and that was it. One was his personal uh, aide-de-camp, but that was only he had an aide-de-camp that was a general officer. Otherwise, if you were a brigade commander and you were a colonel, you didn't. You were an authorized one. Most of them had what I would call a de facto uh, aide de camp that they selected an officer from within one of the subordinate battalions and brought him up to serve as uh, an active ADC. But with an aide aide de camp, if you were a general officer, you got additional funding to support him, uh, feed him, and do other things. He also had what was known as a, a brigade major. And the brigade major's job was uh, much like an operations officer was for a modern day brigade commander. Uh, they work out any plans that were necessary, pass any orders uh, down from the, uh, from the division down to the battalions, uh, collate all the daily status reports on the units, things like that. It's, combination of probably what uh, uh, an adjutant general officer or, or a quartermaster general officer would do at the division level, but he would do it down at the brigade level. And he was quite a busy man. Uh, the one fascinating thing I found was there was no commissary officer assigned to the uh, brigade. He, brigade commander could pass up requests but that was done by either the brigade commander or the brigade major. But if there was a need for resupply of ammunition, resupply of food or anything along those lines, it went from the battalions up to the divisions. And uh, the brigade staff could facilitate it, but they did not have a, a commissary officer down at that level. Is that quite um, kind of encumbering? Because you've got this added Kind of level of administration you know if you need ammunition you need ammunition you should certainly in the modern way of thinking be able to acquire that ammunition but if you're going to have to vet that process that must surely sort of create that extra little bit of kind of bureaucracy that can potentially be quite inhibitive uh i think it could be but if you look at it from a modern perspective where a brigade, a brigade could be spread out over 20 or 30 kilometers distance. Uh, in most cases, during that era, a brigade was maybe over a two kilometer front. And the division might be over a, a five or 10 kilometer front, and that's probably exaggerating it. Uh, but I think it had an impact because there was no brigade train. So in the middle of a battle, if your battalion started running out of ammunition, they'd send someone back to bring up more ammunition from the battalion trains. 
But if the battalion trains were out of ammo, they had to go up to the division uh, to get the, the ammunition they needed uh, or other supplies they would need. And from my perspective as a former staff officer on a brigade level or at a battalion level, they needed, uh, there was no one there that was really managing it to ensure that it was there properly. At battalion level, you had the quartermaster who did it, but there was no one over looking at a brigade uh, level. And I think it had an impact. Now, this was of course during the peninsula and the Waterloo campaign, there were some brigades uh, that had uh, a, an assistant commissary general down at their level, especially the cavalry brigades um, and to manage the find and forage and things like that. But that was uh, not the norm. So, and of course, I've never seen a really good uh, study of the commissary uh, general operations in the Peninsula War or at Waterloo. And I know, uh, I know someone was gonna uh, try to do that. And, and he uh, went to all the major publishers and they said, no, the book would never sell. So he decided to go on to another topic, which is unfortunate. Maybe some that good- yeah, it'd be a good topic for a PhD candidate sometime in the future. It certainly would. I hope that there are some um, potential PhD candidates listening who, who might take that one up. I'm interested in what you said about the brigade major as well. What's the relationship like between brigade major and brigadier, if you will? Good question. I And it varied on based on personalities too. Um, and as I said that, uh, Wellington, you know, chose those he was getting comfortable with. Uh, so did the uh, brigade major or brigade commander try to choose a brigade major who worked with his own uh, method of working. And, was, and sometimes they were able to pick, but if he was a replacement brigade commander, he had to take whoever was uh, assigned to the brigade at the time. And Eventually, he could, you know, if he didn't get along with the individual, he could kind of freeze them out of, or um, and find a replacement. And the same with his uh, aide de camp. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot in the literature about, about what the brigade major does uh, or did in his role with the uh, battalion commander. Uh, I did find uh, Harry Smith. Uh, uh, from the 95th Rifles. He was a brigade major for one of the rifle brigade commanders back in 1811, 1812. Uh, and at the time, his uh, brigade commander was uh, Brigadier General George Drummond, who I do cover in my book. And he gave uh, a quote that I found very funny, but probably very apropos about his relationship with his brigade commander. He said, he said he went to his brigadier at the time. He said, and asked him, have you any orders for the pickets, sir? Now, George Drummond was an old guardsman, though uh, Harry Smith said he was the kindest, though oddest fellow possible. And Drummond responded, well, pray, Mr. Smith, are you my brigade commander? Which Harry Smith responded, I believe so, sir. Then let me tell you, it is your duty to post the pickets and mine to have a damn good dinner for you every day. 
We soon understood each other. He cooked the dinner often himself, and I commanded the brigade. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I laughed when I saw it, and um, you know I don't know how much this is, uh, you know, post-war uh, stories. Uh, it's, but you know, it, there's probably some truth to that. The been on the brigade commanders, some were very hands-on, hands-on. Others would say, okay, I'm here to look good to inspire the men. Here's what I want you to do. You know, you basically make sure all the orders are passed on and every other the mundane things I don't want to do. And in this case, it sounds like exactly what uh, Drummond's idea of what his job was. Absolutely. You know, you are the subordinate. You go and do the, the taxing stuff and I'll, I'll attend to dinner because, you know, yeah. let's face you it, do the boring stuff. Have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dinner's, dinner's much more fun. Which ties into something that I kind of was going to ask you, but I suspect you've covered a good sense of this already in what you're saying about how they have a, a comparatively limited role to fill. And my question is essentially about competency. You know, how much is that a, a factor in gaining a brigade level command? Because this is, in some cases, only one step up from the point of the, the sort of the purchase ceiling, as I call it, that point where you can no longer purchase uh, a commission. So you can do that all the way up to Lieutenant Colonel. Beyond that, it's merit. So presumably there's scope for the inept to end up taking over brigades. Do you see that happening? Uh, Let me uh, comment first on your thoughts about merit. Uh, You had at this level started from beyond Lieutenant Colonel, uh, once you get to Colonel level, everything was by brevet. And a brevet commission was done usually on the King's birthday, which was I think 4th of June. And every year they would take what we would call in the American army, uh, a year class. Uh, American army, if you were promoted with your contemporaries. So everyone who was commissioned would say in 2000, they would be up for captain, let's say in 2003 or uh, 2004, 2005, then up to major at the same time. And those individuals would all be promoted together um, uh, up through the ranks until eventually you reached the pyramid, top of the pyramid. And you know you only had a handful of individuals who got promoted. Well, the British Army was slightly different at the time. If I am, let's say, promoted, and the year group would be those promoted in 1795 to Lieutenant Colonel or 1800, whatever the time frame, they would get promoted by a general a brevet, unless they totally screwed something up. Everyone got promoted to Colonel. And then at the same time, all the colonels in the year group the previous year or whatever, would be promoted to uh, major general. There was no rank of brigadier general per se in these promotions. And then from as long as you hadn't retired or resigned your commission, every four or five years you'd be promoted to the next higher rank until eventually you would have uh, all the general officers who generally got promoted. And I'm not talking major general or lieutenant general, I'm talking about general of the army level. officer who got promoted to the ranks from lieutenant colonel about the same time 
And some of these guys, I think the oldest one I found was 95 years old or so when, uh, and he was still on the rolls as a general officer. Because he never, he never, yeah, he never retired. He never died. And so he kept on getting promoted up through the years. And as long as you didn't screw up, you didn't have to be confident to get promoted. You just didn't have to screw up and get noticed that how bad you were. And I will cover one of those a little uh, later on um, where this happened and the individual ended up retiring as a full general. Uh, there was a, so remind me uh, the, uh, to talk about it, we don't. But so you have the system where everyone got promoted and continued to be promoted um, at the general officer level. Now, if you look within a command structure, there was no formal division per se until there was a time of war. There was no brigades. If we would say we're sending an expedition to Walcheron or we're sending one to Portugal in 1808, first thing they did, uh, the horse guards did, was appoint uh, expedition commander. Then they decided with him what size force he needed and what the composition of the force was. Then he would go down and start looking for his uh, division commanders and they'd start looking for his brigade commanders. And often this force structure would change. Uh, if you look at what happened in 1808 when they first went to Portugal, after uh, uh, you had Wellington was in charge first and he got replaced right after Rolokan Vimiero by some, a couple of generals who weren't uh, very uh, competent. And then John Moore brought in. He didn't like the way the, the army was organized. So he reorganized it, switched units between brigades uh, switched brigades between divisions and he had a whole new structure. This allowed him to design the army that he wanted. So unlike, uh, I'm going to use American army, but the American army today, we have like uh, 10 divisions and it's the same 10 divisions. Uh, and they've been around since, uh, some of them around since World War One. Most of them are been around since World War Two. Within the division, you have same brigades, and within the brigades, you have different battalions. Uh, and you know, this unit was always uh, traditionally associated with its division. Well, and eight by the time 1814 came around, April of 1814, they disbanded that army. Brigade division uh, went away. The brigades, some of them stayed intact, and they were sent to uh, pick on the Americans over in the War of 1812. Over in uh, in Canada and New Orleans and a few other places. But in general, the whole army was dis disbanded and all the battalions went, and regiments went back to uh, garrison duty in Great Britain. And then when the Waterloo campaign came by, they had to stand up the whole army again. So, and the army that you looked at, uh, that you had in the Peninsula War was not the army organized the same way it was in Waterloo campaign. There a couple of uh, cases uh, come to mind. Picton was, I believe, was signed to the 4th Division. I may be wrong, but it wasn't the 3rd Division. And Picton, who was a traditionally assigned to, who led the 3rd Division of the Peninsula War, asked that they rename this division the 3rd Division. And Wellington refused to have it. There was a move to get a light division formed again. That never happened. So the traditions that you have within a division is only 
uh, there as long as that army is around. Once the army stands down and war's over, the division's disbanded. So you don't have, as a, a general officer, you know that, hey, if I reach uh, lieutenant general, I'm going to uh, eventually take over this division. The divisions don't exist if there's no wartime. But, okay, so the system was fairly flexible, but at each level, you were expected to have certain uh, commanders. Uh, lieutenant generals commanded divisions when a division existed. Major generals were supposed to command brigades, okay? They, as I mentioned earlier, there was no such thing as a brigade uh, uh, a brigadier, a permanent uh, rank of brigadier. That was a staff appointment or a brevet promo promotion to uh, an army or a theater rank, or if, and sometimes on a staff rank within uh, the home within Great Britain. But in general, the only ones who really commanded or were supposed to command it were lieutenant generals and at division level and major generals at uh, Brigade levels. Now, something that's not common knowledge, but up until 1814, if you were promoted to a general officer as a brevet through one of these yearly brevets, you only got paid as a general officer if you were in a position that was uh, authorized a general officer position. If you, let's say you got you go out the peninsula and you're brigade commander, you serve there two years as brigade commander, as a major general, you come back and you don't have a job anymore. And in 1814, this happened quite often. You reverted back to whatever your regimental rank was. And this was mostly Lieutenant Colonel until you reached uh, the rank of Lieutenant General and they started giving you a signature of uh, being a uh, regimental Colonel. So you'd go back mm -hmm. as a Lieutenant Colonel uh, and go back into with your battalion or regiment. Some cases though, you could be a Brigadier General and command a brigade, come back, there's no rank, uh, there's no position for you. So you go home, you either go on half pay or you go back to your regiment and then you get called up to be, be a brigade commander again. And a brigade commander position was not authorized in major general rank or even a, a brigadier general rank, you'd go out at whatever rank they were authorized. And I'll give you an example of where this happened. Uh, Robert Crawford, who of the Light Division, is probably one of the most famous generals of the period. He was a brigade commander um, when he went on the South American expedition in 1806. He went in as a brigadier general 1807, he came back, had no job, so he reverted back to being a lieutenant colonel. He was on a staff position for a while as a colonel, which was also a brevet rank. Then in 1808, they stood up the uh, what became the Ar British Army that went to Portugal in the Corona campaign. He was appointed a brigade commander as a colonel. He, so he served the whole time as a colonel, as a brigade commander, in 1808, came back in 1809, he was a colonel, got promoted, uh, brigade stood up, 
the light brigade stood up in 1810 to go to the peninsula and he went out as brigade, uh, a brigadier general. So one expedition, expedition was a uh, uh, brigadier general. Next expedition, he was a colonel. Next expedition, he was a brigadier general. And some of his contemporaries went out as major generals. So it very, it really depended on what unit had uh, what was authorized. Uh, by the end of the Peninsula War, every brigade was authorized a brigade uh, major general as its commander. Whether they it achieve sounds, that or not would. Yeah, it sounds like there's quite an element of luck in all of this, isn't there? Uh, it was initially, uh, I think, uh, but towards the end, uh, though it was, uh, I, I'm a firm believer you, at that time you made your luck too. You keep on putting yourself out there and eventually, uh, if you survived long enough, then you would get the promotions. And if you're competent enough and your reputation was good enough, you get promoted. Sure. However, at the, at the beginning of the war, there was not enough suitable brigade commanders. Not, there was not enough commanders at any level, suitable commanders, competent commanders, uh, uh, especially at the brigade and division command. And this would plague Wellington throughout much of the war. In the early days, it was worse because he didn't get to say who got to fill what uh, the senior positions. He had to take whoever came out. Uh, and there was uh, quite a few reasons for this. The first was the army in Spain, which theoretically was the most important army they were have going, they had, was competing with other theaters. In particular, Walcher and Expedition comes to mind which actually had more men in it than uh, Wellington had in 1809 in Portugal. And so he was competing for the, the generals and the command structure. And he was uh, like the bastard stepchild. He was not getting the, uh, the top generals. And there was a reason for that. One of the reasons was Wellington was not that senior of a general. You know, I laugh when I say he's not senior, but as he was a lieutenant general, but he didn't get promoted to a lieutenant general until April of 1808. Absolutely. And part of it, the issue throughout this conflict, isn't it? That they can't send certain commanders out there who have some of the experience that might be quite useful because there's that issue of seniority and it would create that conflict. And it would, and to give an example of this, in 1810, there were 134 uh, lieutenant generals, uh, which to me is mind-boggling. That's one heck of a lot of lieutenant generals, but as a taxpayer, since they weren't being paid as a lieutenant general, I guess if you can give them all the rank they want. But uh, of those 134 lieutenant generals, there were only 14 of them who were junior to him. And so you can't send out General Jones, who's senior to him, to be in his army, no matter how much General Jones wants to go out, because by going out there, he automatically was senior to Wellington, and Wellington would have to step aside. And if Wellington hadn't been called back in 1808 to answer for what happened in Portugal, along with the, the two senior commanders, he was still junior to um, 
Moore, uh, John Moore. And you think, well, Wellington's, you know, the best general they had, but that didn't matter. Moore would have commanded the army and Wellington would have been uh, a division commander at the very most. Uh, so it, it wasn't until 1811 was he given the local rank of general and they could still send out, uh, they could start sending out uh, those who were more senior to him as a lieutenant general. Now, when I say local rank, this means he was the, as the rank, he had the rank of general. So he was the general, the most senior general rank in the theater. However, as soon as he left Spain and Portugal and went back to Great Britain, his seniority stopped and he was now back down to the level of uh, Lieutenant General. And, you know, by this time he might've moved up the list, uh, you know, several positions to other people and promoted or dying, but he still, you know, wasn't that senior as a Lieutenant General. So as long as he was in Spain and Portugal, it was fine and they could send officers out. But unless they made him a general officer in another theater, which they ended up doing in Waterloo, uh, he wouldn't necessarily be the most senior person and thus in command when he went to that position. And of course but, they have, go ahead. But didn't the field marshal Batten kind of trump everything? I always kind of assumed that as soon as he gets the field marshal thing, that's it, he is top dog. Uh, it would, and it did, but I'd, I'd have to check my paper, uh, my book, I forgot to check to see when he received it, but I think that might have been like 1812 or 1813 before he yeah. became the field marshal. Uh, yeah, it was. But it so would be. 1813, which is, which is why I was really struck by what you said about Waterloo, because field marshal Baton, it's that thing, it's, it's almost kind of the exchange. So I think it's Jordan's um, Baton that he sends back to the Prince Regent, and the Prince Regent makes this kind of grand claim. You've sent me a, a marshal's Baton in return, I send you yours. Um, but, that's, but I, so so in the Waterloo campaign, they still have this issue, do they? Well, they would have, except uh, he went out there as a, a field marshal. And I don't think there is a, well, I know it's not a permanent rank. I think that's a temporary rank. And I could be wrong on it because tell you the truth, I never looked at it from that perspective. But it did affect both at Waterloo and especially during the Peninsula War, who came out to work for Wellington, and it, and many times it was a disaster. Uh, I'm, you're going to hear me mention someone named Henry Turin, who was he was a secret, military secretary to the Duke of York, who was basically commander in chief of the British Army through much of the Peninsula War. And so, if you look at Wellington's correspondence, there's always letter after letter going back and forth between the two of them, because uh, Turin basically was the one who made sure that the overall commander of the British Army, wherever they were, uh, got the correspondence. He, you know, he screened out the stuff he didn't need to know. And he, there are several very interesting letters he'd write back about the quality of the commanders who came out. Uh, and you're going to hear this theme throughout what I'm talking about. And Wellington wasn't happy in 1810 of the quality of his commanders. He wrote a letter to uh, Torrens, the hand to the Duke of York in late August of 1810. He said, I just received your letter announcing the appointment of William Erskine, 
William Lumley, and Andrew Hay to this army. The first, I generally understand to be a madman. I believe it is your opinion that the second is not very wise, and the third will, I believe, to be a, a useful man. Then there is Stafford Lightburn, whose conduct is really scandalous. Lightburn was already assigned to the army at that time. I'm not able to bring him before court martial as I should wish, but he is a disgrace to the army, which can have, have such a man as a major general. When I really, when I reflect upon the characters and attainments of some of the general officers of this army, and consider that these are the persons on whom I am to rely to lead columns against the French generals in order to carry my instructions into execution, I tremble. And as Lord Chesterfield said of the generals of his day, I only hope that when the enemy reads this list of their names, he trembles as I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty damning statement uh, about the quality of some of the generals again. You know, most of them worked out. They were competent. But interesting was what Torrens replied to Wellington when his letter in reply a month later, he said, well, in regards to William Erskine, there's no doubt, sometimes a little mad, but in his lucid intervals, he's an uncommonly clever fellow. I trust he may have no fit during the campaign. Though, though by the by, he looked a little wild a few days before he embarked. That's not really yeah. designed to inspire confidence, is it? He's only a little uh, mad. Yeah, and it's, I'm sitting there, if they knew that, why are they sending them out? And it's a good question. And Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And it just doesn't stop there. And, you know, the horse guards, since the horse guards didn't think insanity was a problem, they didn't consider other uh, physical problems a problem either. There were two officers who were sent out that were probably would be considered legally blind by today's standards. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples. In 1811, Marshal Beresford, who basically was uh, 1810, 1811, he was in command of the Theodore War in southern part of Portugal and operations around Badajoz. Well, uh, Wellington was, you know, Control the operations around Cudad Rodrigo in the north. What do you say? Anyway, Beresford was looking for an officer to command his cavalry, and William Erskine and Charles Stewart's name came up. Erskine arrived in country and he was operating. And Wellington told Beresford that Erskine, he's very blind, which is against him at the 
against him at the head of the cavalry. So be very cautious. Well, so wait a minute. They send out a guy who's not only uh, his insanity is insanity is questionable, but he's blind also. That's and quite then, a problem if you're commanding in the field, isn't it? Not only are you of an unstable, uh, not only are you in an unstable mental state, but you also can't see the enemy. I mean, the not being able to see the enemy, surely, why isn't Wellington sort of turning around to Torrens and saying, you've sent me somebody who can't see, what are you thinking? What's the matter with you? Never mind the, the fact that he's not entirely lucid. He can't see the enemy. That's, well, the, you know, you don't tell well, somebody to march up that hill when you can't see said hill. Yeah, and the, make it more interesting, it was a cavalry officer, and you know they were supposed to be the ones uh, screening the army you can't see. Uh, but in June 1811, another officer comes out who was blind, blind. And, well, okay, hard, had poor eyesight. Well, then wrote back to Duke, Duke of York about him, and this was General Charles Stewart, because Stewart wanted a cavalry command. Uh, General uh, Stewart had commanded the cavalry during the Corona campaign. He comes back out and he's saying, hey, you know, I'm one of the senior cavalry officers available. I want to be, uh, go back to being a cavalry commander. And Wellington writes to the Duke of York and says, hey, General Stewart labors, however, under two bodily defects, the want of sight not, and of hearing. So not only was he can't see, he can't hear either. So he's deaf and blind. Um, yeah, it's starting it to going, sound like a bad joke, isn't it? It is. And so Wellington continues on with, and which must ever prevent him from forming an immediate judgment of what is going on in the field. And from acting on that judgment with the promptitude which is necessary in an officer in the command of a large body of cavalry. And the defect in his sight, having been occasioned by a wound, it cannot be remedied by assistance of glasses. He did point out that while General Stewart's eyes were irreparable, General Erskine's eyes could receive the assistance of glasses. So he said, oh, you know, okay, I'll keep um, Erskine around, but he needs some glasses now. Uh, General Stewart never received a cavalry command in Wilton's, arm, Wilton's army. However, he was appointed the adjutant general. Uh, and there's also rumors that General George von Bach, who commanded a King's German Legion Heavy Cavalry Brigade from 1812 to 1814, couldn't see very well uh, either. I, there's all types of rumors modern historians think so, but I can't find any documentation that supports that, other than the fact that he ordered a charge that was extremely successful at uh, Hernandez uh, Garcia, but he did it according to legend because he couldn't see what they were going up against, but it worked. so. And wow. speaking wow. of insanity, there was uh, another General Stewart who committed suicide in 1812 so, uh, while he was in Portugal. This is incredible. I mean, you've painted a, a brilliantly vivid picture for us of how a number of these people are actually really not the best people for the job. I, I want to take a thematic approach for this next bit so that people can kind of get some of the sense of the breadth the information that is already I think coming out but it is particularly clear in your cracking book and I reviewed your book um or I can't remember when it's, it's somewhere back in the Napoleonist's back catalogue and I ended up raving about it because I really like the way it's done let's start therefore with the success stories 
So the people who do actually demonstrate an aptitude for this role, who really kind of springs to mind in terms of dependability and success, whether that be on the battlefield or off it? Okay, well, there are several that come to mind, but I'd like to divide them both as between the infantry and the commander. Uh, to me, and the cavalry, the infantry commanders to me were generally all very competent. Uh, in most cases, okay, there's a few that had problems. Cavalry, I don't think they've reached the standards of uh, as, as infantry did. Uh, the best probably overall commander, someone you could depend on doing the job of any, at any level in any job, not just as commander was uh, Major General Edward Barnes. Uh, he, he commanded brigades uh, in the, both the second, the fifth and seventh divisions. But before going out to the peninsula in 1812, he was a relatively unknown. Uh, Torrens wrote to Wellington announcing his assignment, said, hey, he's going out to, I'm sending him out to you as a brigadier. He's spoken of as being sensible, young, and active. He arrived there, uh, oh, it's too late to take part in 1812 campaigns, and his brigade saw very little action until the Pyrenees in 1813. And then that's when his reputation was established uh, uh, at Echelar on 2 August. He was ordered to clear a 6,000-man French force from the hill that was the front of his brigade. And as one eyewitness said, he, he said his brigade at the French as if every man had been a bulldog and himself the best bread of them all. Basically, he attacked a, a 6,000-man force on a hill. So he had to attack uphill with about 1,500 men. I was going to say, the numbers disparity there is huge. It's going yeah, to be, you know, three, four to one. And they did it. And he, General Barnes was one of these guys that uh, led through the front. And after the battle, another officer who had witnesses said that he had 20 musket shots through his clothes, hat, and saddle. But what not one of them touching his body. Uh, now, ironic, the funny thing about it, when word reached London of how well uh, Barnes was doing, Torrance writes back to Wellington said, kind of in a, well, I told you so. I'm a little proud of General Barnes, when I, whom I selected for your staff, and who formed part of the batch of generals that alarmed you so much. By the end of the Peninsula War, uh, you know, Barnes continued to do great things, and when Wellington was ordered to send some brigades in April of 1814 to, uh, to North America to fight against the United States. He was one that Wellington selected to go to lead a brigade against Americans. He did, and what was unusual, he was one of the few who made it back in time in 1815 after the War of 1812 was over, and he made it back in time to, uh, for the Waterloo campaign. But instead of uh, being selected for uh, Brigade command, he became um, the adjutant general of the army. Uh, but he was really a brigade commander, or a frontline commander at heart, and he was very aggressive and was down there uh, putting units in place, leaving charges, things like that. And he continued to be a bullet magnet. At Quatre Bras, uh, he led the attack of the 92nd Highlanders to clear part of the, the village because uh, they had been in his brigade in the previous year. Uh, his horse was killed in that attack, so it tells you he was leading to the front. 
And then at Waterloo, two days later, when General Adams' brigade attacked, he went with them through what was described as a shower of lead and hailstones and was severely wounded in the shoulder. So he, he was knocked out of the battle. You know, here's a staff officer leading the uh, brigades and battalions in the fight. He was evacuated to the rear. The next morning, an eyewitness found him propped up in bed, covered with blood with very dangerous wound through the shoulder, grinning from ear to ear at the news, and as composed and indifferent about himself as they had done or suffered nothing. So he was a consummate brigade commander and the consummate, uh, and he was a, known as being a superb staff officer. Good enough that uh, he uh, was made the adjutant general of the Wellington's army. And you don't- Astonishing man. Yeah, you don't find uh, those two characters often in one, uh, or those two characteristics in the same commander at, uh, at the same time. Um, did he survive from his wound? It didn't kind of... Yeah, he up. did survive. Uh, tell you the truth, I didn't... Uh, it's in my book, and I'd have to go back and tell you what he went on to do. Uh, but I don't think he... He probably one got continued to get promoted, and I think he went back to uh, North America and served in slots there. But, you know, he's to me, he's one of those names no one ever heard of. Uh, and he was superb at everything he did. And it took until 1812 to get him out there. Uh, the, I, I said he's the best overall commander. He was not necessarily what I considered the best combat commander. And that goes to uh, Dennis Pack. And this guy, if, if you look at his life, it, it would appear that someone is someone out of Richard Sharp books. Uh, you know, he's larger <laughs> than life. Uh, and he... He was great. Uh, he had the, a huge personality, uh, and he did things that's amazing. And to give you an example of some of the things that about his career, he was Irish, and a large part of uh, Wellington's armies were Irish. Uh, officers uh, were general officers were Irish, and it, but he was commissioned in the 14 Light Dragoons as an ensign. And this is back in the 1790s, early 1790s. And he got in an argument with his uh, troop commander and assaulted him. And the court, he got court-martialed and was suspended without rank and seniority for two years. Basically said, yeah, you're still in the regiment, but you have no rank, no authority. And when we, at the end of two years, we'll let you back in, uh, back as an ensign, but you go at the bottom of the list. That's an incredibly uh, long time. Normally, yeah. suspension of rank and pay is three months, perhaps six months. I think that's probably the first time I know of a couple of cases of one year suspension, but I don't think I've ever come across a two year before. That's incredible. What did he do yeah, to I, the guy? Uh, you know, they, I've never found anything, but uh, Marcus uh, Beresford is just putting the finishing touches on a biography of Dennis Pack. So it, might be covered in his book. But he did, after he was suspended, he went over to Flanders as a volunteer and performed all these uh, feats of valor and stuff that after 18 months, they came back and said, okay, you can go back to your regiment and uh, assume duties with the regiment. Uh, he was involved in almost every, he was in the Flanders and then uh, He's very closely linked with the 71st Highland Light Infantry, 
and he led them through much of the early 1800s up until uh, about 1810. Yeah, he, he commanded them at Buenos Aires, he commanded them in the Corona campaign, and then commanded them in Walcheron expedition in 1809. And, and all three of those campaigns, his, his unit took heavy casualties uh, either through combat or through disease. And, and by the time they returned, they were basically combat ineffective and they were just uh, a shadow of their former strength. And he had to rebuild the regiment. So did and he just I, essentially push them too hard? I think uh, they were a product of him. He trained them well. I think the units, uh, his men loved them. And I'm not going to say he pushed them too hard. I think he might have led them too hard where he said, okay, it's time to take that hill. Let's go. And the, they followed him faithfully. And uh, that shows uh, the force of his personality was so great that he was, uh, the men followed him. And, you know, you got units where the unit, the commander goes, go take that hill. And the troops would look at each other and say, mm, uh, if they do it, they won't be doing it very enthusiastically. But these guys would go with it uh, behind them and follow behind them. And his first love was the 71st Highland Light Infantry. And they go back to uh, the England. They had to be rebuilt again after Walteran. He gets appointed a brigade commander in the Portuguese army. And he commanded a brigade in, um, in the, the Portuguese brigade between in 1810 to 1813. But when the 71st Highland Light Infantry returned uh, to the peninsula, he asked uh, Wellington for permission to resign his commission in the Portuguese uh, army, where he was a major general or brigadier general at the time, and said, I want to go back to being a lieutenant colonel and command my regiment. And Wellington, fortunately for the British army, said, no, you're too valuable as you are, and I want you to stay in command of the Portuguese. Uh, whom he commanded, he was offered the command of the uh, of in the Portuguese army in 1810. He commanded until July of 1813. At this point, one of those annual brevet um, promotions come up, and he selected to be a major general in the British army. And at that time, he was also a major general in the Portuguese army. And he said, "Well, since I'm major." General in the British Army, I want to go back commanding the uh, British Army. And so he, he was one of the few uh, officers who who had been seconded to the Portuguese Army, who actually transferred back to the British Army during the Peninsula War and commanded. And he commanded the Highland Brigade in the 6th Division, and then the, uh, for the rest of the uh, Peninsula War, and then the 9th Brigade during the Waterloo Campaign. Very interesting uh, soldier. He led from the front. And what's a lot well known about him, other than Wellington, he's the most decorated British soldier of the Peninsula War. Uh, he, uh, every time you commanded a, generally a battalion or higher in a battle that was successful, you would be, uh, you'd be eligible to receive an army gold cross. So they gave him out to most of the commanders and staff officers. The only person who had more than him was Wellington. He had 
seven clasps to his army gold cross, which meant you, you receive an army gold medal and you put a, for each subsequent award up to four, you would put a, a little clasp on the ribbon of the medal. When you reach four or more, they gave you the army gold cross, then you continue to add clasps to them. He had seven clasps to the army gold cross, which meant that he had been awarded the army gold medal for 11 times. The only per, two people, all, well, only Wellington had been awarded more army gold medals than him. And then Beresford also been awarded 11 of them. So other than Wellington, he was the most decorated British soldier of the Peninsula War. And this translates into during just the Peninsula War, he fought in 18 separate battles or combats, which incredible number. And during uh, that time, uh, he was just wounded eight times. Uh, unlike a lot of the brigade commanders, some of the brigade commanders, he was a superb tactician. And as when he was in the Portuguese army, he was command of an independent brigade. So he didn't take his orders from uh, the division commander. He received them directly from uh, either Beresford or from Wellington, the army, who was, whoever was commanding the army at the time. Now, as a commander, he was known uh, for having, believe it or not, a very calm demeanor. He wasn't a, you know, a fire eater or a fire breather would get everyone riled up and up the hill they go. But at, uh, one officer described him at Toulouse in 1814 as he sat on a horseback in the middle of the road, showing an example of the most undaunted bravery to the troops. I think I see him now as he then appeared, perfectly calm and unmoved, with a placid smile upon his face amid a perfect storm of shot and shells. Uh, when I mentioned that he was wounded, he was actually wounded eight times, uh, severely wounded eight times. And he would joke about his wounds. He was shot uh, during the Pyrenees in the head. And he says to uh, another one of his generals, he says, now that it, if that ball had struck any other but an Irish head, it would certainly have broken it. <laughs> so yeah, it's so, wow. yeah. And I, I can't wait till Marcus ben, uh, Beresford's book comes out just to get more information on it. But as I said, Dennis Pack, was larger than life. And yeah, most people have heard of it. it. And the, there was uh, my other nomination at a general officer level is relatively unknown was Colin Halkett. And he's probably unknown mostly because he, in the peninsula, was only a lieutenant colonel when he commanded a brigade. And most of my talks about general officer, but he, Welton thought highly enough of him that he kept him in command of brigade as long as possible. It was, uh, and he even created brigades, like created ad hoc brigades uh, just to keep him in command of a brigade. Uh, for example, uh, he commanded a brigade and then someone came out of a senior to him to give him command. And Wellington said, no, this guy's too good. I can't, I don't want to send him back to battalion. So he sent him to the first division and uh, gave him two King German Legion Life Battalions as a brigade. And he acted as brigade commander. They were not officially on the books. He was not a brigade commander receiving all the pay and perks as being a brigade commander because he was only a lieutenant colonel. Uh, 
it reached a point, uh, uh, it's not well known, but in 1814 that, or late 1813, uh, British commanders or British government decided to send an expeditionary force into the Netherlands. They needed uh, brigade commanders. They had to form a whole new army out of from scratch. And Wellington said, hey, I got the person just who you need. Here's Colin Halkett. And by that time, he was given a brevet uh, colonel, promotion colonel. And then up to Major General um, in early 1814. And the reason why he makes the list as one of the best brigade commanders is a uh, general officer is he did command uh, the 5th Brigade at Waterloo as a major general. And he was wounded there uh, four times. So he, he's, uh, he was not one of those uh, really good commanders, but unknown, kind of like Barnes. No one really knows about him, unless you study uh, Waterloo. And what about popular commanders, people perhaps with a sort of Daddy Hill-esque reputation amongst the rank and file? Do we have much evidence of that? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one to answer because, uh, you know, I collect the memoirs and, it, and it's rare for other ranks memoirs to mention the brigade commanders. For me, that, it's not really surprising because 200 years ago, they might know the commander by his name, but did they have much interaction with him? And I'm looking back at my own time as experienced as a very young soldier many years ago. I rarely saw my battalion commander and the brigade commander even less. We used to think uh, when I was a young sergeant, we used to think that majors were seated at the right hand of God. So, you know, having a colonel or major general talk to us, unheard of. But there was a couple that uh, had very good uh, reputation. Uh, one of them was Robert Ross, who commanded a brigade in the fourth division. Uh, he, like many of his contemporaries, he led from the front, being wounded several times, having many horses killed in battle, you know, the typical that happened. Uh, he really looked after his people uh, uh, and forced his officers to uh, look after their people before they looked after themselves, which is not necessarily the standard that was enforced back then. Uh, today, it's a given. But uh, he was well known for his humanity. Uh, during the retreat, uh, from Corona, you know, the, the soldiers and the wives were falling by the roadside, unable to keep up. And one uh, sergeant wrote about how Ross uh, was riding around with a small boy on his saddle in front of him because the boy's uh, parents had died during the hardship of the march. And uh, he was basically adopted into the regiment. Ross was killed by the Americans at Baltimore in 1814 after he successfully burned down Washington, D.C. in the White House. And his body was preserved in 129 gallons of rum and shipped back to uh, Nova Scotia for a burial. And at the time of his burial, they disinterred him. The soldiers in the funeral procession stopped with a, and each one of them took a cup and uh, put the cup into the the barrel of rum that he had been preserved in and got a drink of rum out of the uh, uh, out of it now which yeah. is because yeah. they honored him or because they wanted the rum it's hard to say but uh, uh, I can't imagine that happening today 
Um, no, it's funny, I heard a similar story about Nelson um, when, because Nelson's body was brought back, um, having been preserved in, I forget what, it might have been rum, um, being the Navy. And yeah, the same story um, that, you know, they, they supposedly drank it afterwards. Uh, that, that's a decidedly yuck prospect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, you know, Pack was well thought of. Uh, Barnes was known as our fire-eating adjutant general. He actually got a nickname, which was um, almost unknown of. Edward Stopford, who commanded uh, in the first and fourth divisions, and also a guards brigade, uh, he was well known not only for being um, well thought of, uh, for being uh, taking care of his men, but he also trained his uh, uh, NCOs in the regiments, the sergeants, uh, to how they interact with the soldiers under their control. And he would tell them he was particularly desiring of, of the NCOs never to strike or use any proper improper language to any soldiers, whatever, as there was other methods to be taken if a soldier committed a fault. He also told them that if a man had the spirit of a soldier, he could not stand to be insulted in such a degrading manner. Therefore, he requested that no such unlike, unsoldier-like customs would ever appear in the brigade he had to honor command. Uh, which, wow, well, that goes against, you know, the thought of the sergeant standing there yelling at his men. You know, you've seen the movies and reading the books. And then he also looked after his men quite a bit. So uh, Ross, uh, Barnes, Stopford, uh, uh, pack, they're all well known for taking care of the men. Uh, and it, but the flip side of it was they demanded the most of it, the men too. So uh, uh, they, but, and they got the most out of the men by taking care of it. Unfortunately, that was not necessarily the way other generals took, uh, were looked at. No, it, it is interesting, isn't it, that some did have this more sort of almost humanitarian outlook when it came to the business of command. And, and these are the sorts of people that Wellington would have approved of um, at any level, because he was always complaining that many didn't attend to them in, in the way they needed to. So with that in mind, let's flip this on its head then. There must have been absolutely disastrous appointments for a variety of reasons beyond just this guy's blind, this guy's deaf, this guy's start raving mad. So give us some of the gossip. Uh, okay, we'll start. Uh, we'll start with Major General Stafford Lightburn. Wellington almost wanted to get rid of him uh, from the very beginning. He commanded brigades in the 3rd and 4th Divisions in the 1809-1810. And you can see his correspondence saying, I want, this, I want to relieve Stafford Lightburn, but I can't get rid of him unless I have cause. And I don't, you know, this at the time, Wellington didn't want to ruin anyone's career. But basically, he was drunk at Busaco. He was so drunk he was incapable of commanding. And there was at least, uh, in a way I know this, is one of his officers, uh, John Cameron of uh, the Ninth Foot, writes home and said, hey, Lightfoot was drunk, missed a battle because he was at the rear yelling at people to bring ammo up. Uh, that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Lightburn was sent home. And he was, you know, it was never said why in the official correspondence and he was but he was never employed again but he was continued to be promoted and he made, <laughs> was promoted to lieutenant general in 1813 
Wow. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I'm the, I've got other examples. I'm going to talk about one that I found very interesting. An individual named Frederick Adam. And he, he really didn't command under Wellington uh, in the Peninsula War, but because he, he was on the brigade, a brigade on the east coast of Spain. And they, but they the then command the third brigade at Waterloo. He was one of the, he was promoted to colonel when he was 28 and given the brigade in eastern Spain. Wow. He's and at Waterloo, me and he's commanding a brigade. Yeah, and he was just turned 31 at Waterloo. Now, he was a perfect example of also who was promoted too early due to his family influence. His father was a member of parliament and close and very close to the royal family. You know, he may have been competent, but it's rare that you're able to turn that, uh, his skills into something that's useful without the experience to back it up. And at 28, you know, he barely had time to command a company or a battalion, and now he's suddenly been given a command of a brigade. And because of his ability to, his influence, he was appointed a brigade commander at, in Waterloo. And I'm pretty sure Wellington didn't have a say on this one because there was a lot of other people he could have chosen to be brigade commander. And he, his command uh, was key for part of the victory. He, was, uh, he, was, he had commanded the brigade that had the 52nd foot in it at Waterloo. And I know Garrett Glover says it was basically John Colburn commanded the 52nd foot who was so instrumental to the success of the brigade because he basically took command of brigade or ignored all the brigade commander's instructions and did what he wanted as it was needed. And his lack of experience did show. And uh, he did get credit for the success of the brigade because he was in command. But most people think John Colburn of the 52nd was key to it. And I'm not saying he would not have been a, a superb brigade commander, but uh, by the time he would have reached enough experience or had enough experience to uh, mature into the position, all the wars were over. And uh, so his performance was not bad, was not good. That's interesting because, yeah. I mean, this clears up something that has been uh, bugging me for a while about um, why Adam does some pretty dodgy things in terms of what Wellington would have considered acceptable when it came to plundering during the Waterloo campaign. And, you know, the fact that he hasn't served under Wellington before and the relative inexperience and the sort of the youth would probably explain why he's going, yeah, go plunder those farmhouses. That's absolutely fine. I'm not going to stop you. You know, you, you've done your job. Off you go. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and, but I'll say in his defense, you know, you develop a bad reputation for, yeah, I'm not going to say it was uh, totally incompetent or he had any personality problems like we've discussed with other ones, but he just didn't have the experience. Well, if you get that type of reputation, anything you allow your troops to do is just going to pile on uh, damage in your reputation. Uh, I was going to talk about Pack earlier, but there's Pack led his uh, troops, uh, he, in one case, after Waterloo, his troops are out there plundering uh, the French farmers, and several of them got arrested by uh, staff officers and pack intervened and said 
basically uh, he's not going to do anything until you guys uh, start providing them the food they need to exist because the commissary, commissary after Waterloo was so screwed up. And uh, he was known for doing that. Uh, and, you know, nothing happened to him for doing the same thing. Matter of fact, he overrode the staff officers and probably got passed up to the chain of command. But, hey, this is Pack, the golden hair boy. So uh, nothing's going to happen to him. Adam does the same thing. And, uh, and it's known well enough that he did uh, dodgy things. So all depends on who you were in the end, too. So It does. And, it know, does. Uh, and uh, it, is, it also speaks to what you were saying about um, old drunk guy Lightburn. Um, I, I'm forever going to refer to him in my head now as, as just drunk guy on the base of his performance at Basako. Um, But the fact that he wasn't tried, it, again, it's that partly, I think, out in the peninsula, it would have been the challenge of convening enough officers of a suitable rank to yeah. try him when Wellington's complaining about, you know, I can't bring him to court martial. But also, like you say, it's that that challenge that you've got about everybody being very touchy about their honor and their reputation and that kind of shielding people. And particularly if they've got those connections that reinforces that kind of shield around them. Absolutely. And let me give you one other example that's not well known at all, but John McDonald, he commanded a Portuguese brigade at uh, Toulouse in 1814. Did very well. Next day he's arrested, charged with murder tried, found guilty, and sentenced to be strangled by uh, a garage. A British officer in the Portuguese army get it sentenced to be uh, executed. I bet you had never heard of that one before. Uh, I was literally about to say, which for context for listeners, I've spent um, a lot of time going through, as I've called people many times, the court-martial records for the British army over 11 consecutive years, and nobody is ever executed for any crime. Uh, so well, no officer is ever executed for any crime. So that is literally unheard of. Well, he wasn't executed. Wellington, when he finds out about it, intervenes. He's cashiered out of the Portuguese army, never gets any of the awards and honors that all the other of his contemporaries are happens to him. So he's back as the, uh, I think he was only a captain at the time in the British Army. And it's as if never, nothing ever happened. When he died, he was a full general in the British Army. No way. Yeah. And that's John McDonald. Uh, so, you know, as I, Ron McGeegan and I used to laugh and say, you know, we can't make some of this stuff up. It's, it's just so strange or modern way of thinking about things, but it didn't happen in the British army, so they didn't care. And and I've actually, we tried to find the records of why he was court-martialed or the records of the court-martial. Of course, uh, they could not be found and it had to be fairly, fairly serious. Uh, and we were thinking it, he may have killed his mistress or someone like that. But we don't think it was a military offense. It was uh, so, but who knows? Uh, who knows? Hopefully That's someday we'll be able to find them. Yeah. I, I hope so. that we do, because that would be, I mean, any information on the Portuguese court martial system would be fascinating to me, but that's just, you know, me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite sickening, isn't it, to a modern 
observer to kind of look at how these people get away with, in this case, literally murder. Um, and, and because they've got the connections, they, they just can. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we don't want to cause a scandal, we're gonna sweep it under the rug and uh, ignore it. And McDonald actually went back and successfully commanded uh, again. Uh, but that's a topic for another story, or another time, so. Absolutely. Uh, We've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but we talk a lot about losses amongst divisional commanders being incredibly high. But you've kind of emphasized here some of the sort of come on figures amongst brigade commanders. So who would you say were the most promising individuals whose careers were cut short? Uh, this is fairly easy because uh, uh, there were some good ones who died. Uh, the, but first, let me touch on it real briefly. The casualty rate among the brigade commanders, general officers who were brigade commanders, was seven, uh, 60% either killed, wounded, uh, died of illness, sickness, or went home uh, wow. broken in health. That's huge. 17 of those, or 25%, died. So that's one in four of the brigade commanders who either killed or died in sickness. And you wouldn't really want the appointment, would you, if you knew no, that? No, well, but... <laughs> hey, and, I'm going to make you brigade commander. No, seriously, please don't. Just, just put me off on half pay. I'm, I'm much happier there. Yeah, and I don't recall whether that's really high among all brigade commanders. I'm not even sure I looked at it, but, you know, that's significant. You have one in four chance of dying. Uh, one I haven't mentioned before was Robert Anstruther. He was probably equivalent to uh, John Barnes as one of the best, both as commander and a staff officer, always led by example. And during the Corona campaign, he refused to bivouac inside buildings or houses unless all his troops were. So he bivouacked out in the open, caught pneumonia and died during the campaign. Had he survived, he like, without a doubt, he would have been given another another brigade, if not a division under Wellington, or been made as adjutant general. Uh, uh, Robert Ross, I already mentioned, was killed in Baltimore in 1814. Uh, Richard Hulse is another one no one has ever heard of. He commanded a brigade in the 6th Division at Salamanca, and the 6th Division uh, was instrumental in, uh, well, had a critical attack during the battle, and his role was instrumental in its success. He was actually so well thought of by Wellington, he was given temporary command of the 5th Division after the battle, but chance would have that he died of sat, uh, uh, typhus two months later. So who knows how far he would have gone. And for, Bob, for folks who aren't familiar, the 6th Division is the one that steps in to fill the gap when the 4th Division breaks, um, and then in turn break the, the counterattack from um, Bonnet's men and, and kind of pushes Clausel's it's at that point Clausel's force back. Um, so yeah, to, to have been instrumental in that is- Yeah, did that. and the division commander that the fifth division was uh, seriously wounded. So he filled in temporarily. And of course, go back to my all time favorite, Dennis Pack. He survived everything, died of heart failure in 1823. No telling where, how far he would have gone if he hadn't died prematurely. Uh, uh, Seems like a terrible but, waste, doesn't it, to get through all of that yeah. and then, you know, heart failure is, is what gets you. Yeah, it was too bad, but 
as I said, you know, with all the quirks and faults of these commanders, the good, the bad, the insane, the blind, whatever, they did lead from the front and they paid for it. And they, you know, uh, died in droves. So I, I have a lot of respect for them about that. Well, it, well, it's difficult not to, isn't it? Uh, particularly, I mean, I know we keep kind of mentioning it, but that come on, go on disparity, you know, these certainly from the, the examples that we've heard about tonight, today as people are listening to this podcast um that's that seems to be sort of quite a common trait amongst these and, and i suppose in that sense it's unsurprising that the losses are so high i'm also curious about the rivalries between different individuals do we have any accounts of efforts of sort of one-upmanship or personalities grating on each other and what do we know about how those got resolved uh we have one very well-known case, and the rest you'd have to dig for. The, the best-known case is Major General Robert Ballard Long, um, who commanded a light cavalry brigade from 1809 through 1813. And he just got a, off on a wrong foot with Beresford, because he was under Beresford's command um, in the southern part of the theater. And he would ride home uh, about everything that was going on, good and bad. And he never prefaced his uh, letters home saying, hey, don't, you know, this is for your information only. Well, they, uh, his family had no thoughts about releasing his uh, <laughs> criticisms uh, with Ooh, Beresford. Yeah. Uh, and they went public with him. And Beresford hated him. Uh, Wellington could have fire him because he was one of the few competent uh, cavalry commanders he had. So he did something that Wellington uh, did when he wanted to get rid of someone. He basically reduced his responsibilities so that the individual would be embarrassed that suddenly, you know, I went from being, you know, highly regarded, you know, and given command. Like, for example, one time long add command of uh, six cavalry regiments. Basically, he was the equivalent to a division commander. By 1813, this feud with Beresford had reached the point that uh, his command had been, re even though it was brigade, brigade, he only had a cavalry regiment under it. Eventually, Long gave up and went home. And, but the feud continued because uh, when uh, all his letters were kept. And when William Napier wrote his history of the uh, uh, war in Fran uh, Spain and France, uh, Long's nephew took up Long's cause and wrote a series of pamphlets that pitted uh, Long and William Napier against uh, Marshall Beresford and his supporters. And this thing went on for years. Matter of fact, uh, Mark Thompson recently, well, within the last 10 years, wrote, uh, published all these letters and the pamphlets that came out. Uh, so even after his death, he was still, you know, fighting on about how he felt he was uh, misused by Beresford and uh, Wellington. But really the real issue was, that came out was seniority between the commanders. You know, and seniority is, uh, it's very trickly because uh, 
as I mentioned earlier, general officer rank was a brevet, and they tended to be promoted on the same day, which is usually the King George's birthday. If they were promoted on the same day, then the senior officer was the one whose name was promoted, was first on the list. Okay. <laughs> Always comes and back to the alphabet and the register, doesn't it? <laughs> well, not necessarily, though. It's not wasn't really? the alphabet. The list was determined by who was senior uh, based on the previous brevet. And this could go all the way back to who was senior when they were promoted to colonel. And by the promotions of colonel by brevet, it was based on when you were promoted to the lieutenant colonel. So, and then you have the question you throw in, okay, I, I'm a major in the British Army, but I'm a major general in the uh, Portuguese Army. My rank as a major general in the Portuguese Army is senior to your rank in the British Army. But if I go back to the British Army, I go back as a major. And of course, you know, you got pride and everything else. And it reached a point that Wellington actually came out and said, data rank is data rank. Whoever's senior based on same uh, data rank, regardless of whose army you're on, you're the senior officer. Suck it up. And there was a couple of cases where it happened where uh, Thomas Brisbane, Brisbane had this issue with manly power. Both uh, uh, Brisbane was promoted to major general in the British Army in June of 1813. Uh, and Welton kept him on the staff, but didn't think... Um, and then promote him to division commander. Power, however, was in the division or temporary division commander. Power was uh, promoted to major general in the Portuguese army before Brisbane was uh, promoted in the British army. And Brisbane went um, to Wellington said, hey, I'm senior in the British army. And Wellington said, too bad. Power's the senior of the two. And nothing else came of that. But in the case, there was George Madden against Pack, same issue. And George Madden was marginally uh, competent while Pack was, you know, light years ahead of him in competency. But Madden was senior in the Portuguese army, but not in the British army. And uh, Wellington didn't want Madden to be in command of the division. So he basically sacked uh, Relieved uh, Madden in the command, told him to go back to Lisbon, they'll find him another job there, and promoted uh, uh, Pack or gave him temporary <laughs> command of the army. So, you know, Wellington played the games, but bottom line, seniority was seniority regardless of your army uh, rank uh, or which army you're in. And Wellington pretty much lived that, but it caused a lot of hard feelings on it. The last one I'll mention brief briefly was plain old jealousy. Uh, uh, General Robinson, Frederick Robinson, and was uh, very jealous of General Andrew Hay. Both of them were at San Sebastian, but uh, Robinson actually wrote home to his wife and criticized Hay as a fool uh, and a coward. And he's a, he called him a paltry, plundering old wretch that's established... Uh, Beyond doubt that he's no officer is as clear and that he wants spirit is firmly believed. Basically, he was calling him a drunk who plunged, took, stole everything he wanted and 
was a coward. And there wasn't much to support this. However, they were both involved in the final assault in the, of St. Sebastian and, um, on 31 August, and Hay got all the credit. And Robinson felt Hay got the credit he deserved. Uh, and Robinson's uh, brigade took 80% more casualties than Hay did, and were the first one into the breach. And so Robinson probably had a good case, but you know, Hay was well thought of. Robinson was one of the no one of these generals who were, uh, you know, they were competent, but well, uh, Wellington didn't know. So in the end, Hay got all the credit. Robinson did it, and Robinson was very bitter about it. So. Seniority Absolutely. was the main problem. Jealousy was another one. And just talking out of turn, not keeping your mouth shut and talking about senior officers will get you in trouble every time. So It certainly will when it, in, in any army, not just in the British Army during this period. This has been an absolute joy, Bob. It's just great to have guests on here who can kind of offer a cascade of knowledge like you've done this evening. Before we wrap up, I want to give our listeners a little bit of a teaser about what you're working on at the moment. Well, I appreciate that offer. Uh, my book, I've written six, this will be my seventh, and I would consider this the most important book I've ever written, uh, just because of what's in it. A few years ago, uh, Moses Gaudencio, is known uh, among those who follow the Portuguese, was in the Portuguese ar uh, archives and found after action reports written by Portuguese battalion, regimental brigade and division commanders during the Peninsula War. But very few of these uh, reports have ever been published before. Not, and primary reason is 95% of them were written in Portuguese. And so the Portuguese perspective of the Peninsula War has been lost. You look at uh, Charles, Omen, and you know he talks very little about the Portuguese, and often it's not very uh, uh, what's the proper word. He doesn't talk very highly of them. Let's put it that way. Well, Moises, my co-author of it, translated uh, over 270 of these reports and casualty returns, and tra uh, translated them into English, and they're going to be published by uh, Pen and Sword. Uh, sometime this year. I uh, just got the proofs for them last week, so we'll put in the finest touches out of them. The name of the book is going to be called, in the words of Wellington's Fighting Cox, the After Action Reports of the Portuguese Army During the Peninsula War uh, from 1812 to 1814. Uh, the reason why I say this book is going to be so important, other than just to hype the book, is because it paints the Portuguese Army's uh, contribution to the war totally different light. Uh, Casualty returns are different. And some of these reports gets down to written by ensigns and lieutenants about what they were doing uh, on detached duties. Fascinating look at the Portuguese army. And That's hopefully incredible. it'll be real, be well received. Yeah, well, I, th I, it's just, I thought it was a given that it will be. That's just so valuable in terms of how the Portuguese story is so often, as you say, poorly understood at best. Uh, in many cases, misunderstood or just plain ignored. That's, I mean, so this is coming out sometime hopefully, around Christmas? Hopefully at Christmas. Uh, I just checked the Pen and Sword website and it said 30 November. So, uh, okay. So, he, folks, Christmas uh, list, there you go. That, that's that's yeah. Christmas sorted right there. 
it's uh, unfortunately uh, we were we 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 did provide enough background to put all the books in context and live the book was uh, 200,000 words uh, long and the publisher said we had to cut uh, cut it down to 150,000. So the context became very short and to the point and uh, it explains what all the reports were about but uh, a lot of the nice no stuff context wise had to be cut just so that we were able to get all the reports in there. Uh, but we still think it's going to be extremely valuable. I think it definitely uh, would be. Yeah, can do I have time to give one more plug? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Okay, well, uh, some of you may be aware that I recently had a book uh, published on the Light Division during the Peninsula War. It basically looked at 1810. Well, I'm working with Garrett Glover, who's well known for uh, writing books and bringing out all types of information on primary sources. Well, there'll be a trilogy of books on the Light Division coming out. Uh, each volume will, contains uh, primary sources. One volume will be on the 43rd foot, another one on 52nd foot, and the third will be on the 95th rifles and the division staff. Most of these uh, sources have never been published before, or if they have, they're at least 100 to 150 years old. And it'll be a goldmine of uh, material for those interested in the light division. And they're supposed to be published by Frontline Books uh, in 2022. Okay, so a little while to wait for those, but something certainly to look forward to. Bob, thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been an absolute masterclass. I'm looking at the, the, the clock now. We are looking at the second longest episode that we've ever recorded, such as kind of the, the, just the sheer volume of your knowledge and, and the richness of it and the value of, of everything that you've, you've imparted. Thank you so much for joining me. Please do come back to talk about the Portuguese army in due course when that book comes out so we can publicize that for you. And then again, um, we can schedule something to talk about the light division as well, um, because I'm sure that would go down incredibly well. It's been so good. Thank you so, so much. Well, it's, my, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me uh, to give this uh, talk. That was Bob Burnham joining me to discuss Wellington's Brigade Commanders. If you haven't checked out Bob's work already, you can find all of his books on the Pen and Sword website. I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those of you who don't want to make regular contributions. Totally understand that. Also totally understand if you don't want to make any contribution. But if you are inclined to leave a one-off tip, you can now tip the Napoleon Assist on Ko-fi. Check in the description of this episode. There's a link and just follow it from there. Know in advance that your generosity whatever the size of your tip, is hugely appreciated. And as you know, all of this money gets reinvested into the show so that I can grow the channel. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout-out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going, essentially, through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks in there, including a discount code at Pen and Sword, so be sure to check out the link in the description for details. And the perks are changing all the time, so I'm now looking at setting up a Discord server so that people can effectively chat within the Napoleon Assist community when the mood takes them. A particular thanks go to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, 
Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Lyon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. That is almost the end of Wellington Month, but we're not quite done. Join me in just 48 hours' time when... Well, actually, all I'll say at this stage is we go out with one heck of a bang. You are not going to want to miss the Wellington the Great debate, which lands on Monday. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.